0: hello everyone and welcome to the second season of air it podcast this is officially episode nine and we've also released our first mini-sode at the end of last year so today's episode was also recorded last year and as you might notice the sound quality is sounding much better now as we have purchased new equipment however the sound quality of this episode might still be a little bit shaky. We were recording via Zoom. We also hosted an international guest. So please excuse some of the small technical glitches in this episode. We would also like to extend a note of thanks to our Patreon subscriber, Azal Kutsia. And those who supported our laundromat Idea Club last year. While we appreciate all kinds of support, these financial contributions have enabled us to purchase new equipment and help grow our podcasts. So please remember that you can also support us on Patreon and find more details surrounding that in our show notes. Just a note about the episode that you are about to listen to. We spoke to a very exciting guest called Valeria Geselev. You will hear more about her introduction soon and we spoke about the broad theme of gender and spaces and design. We framed the conversation initially with the question what does a female space look like? Listening back to the episode we noticed that we rather inconsistently referred to categories of sex and gender. So when sometimes we asked what does a female space look like we actually meant to say maybe a woman's space. We go on to discuss constructions of gender and uh, we just wanted to flag this before you listen, and also with that, you can look forward to one of our upcoming episodes this season, where we will actually discuss the notion of gender abolition. So, without much further ado, I am very excited to kick you off with episode nine, the first episode of season two.
1: I'm Nicoline Berger,
0: and I'm Johanna Forslöw, and, and this, this is It.
1: I'm very excited to introduce Valeria Geselev today. Um, Valeria curates, she writes, she protests, she starts conversations, she encourages critical thinking. And to me, she's been a mentor and an expander. She's guided me into problematizing my views around spaces, around my politics and my art, and the protest of presenting art. Um, I would describe her style as bold, colorful, out there, and with a very direct agenda to bring about more inclusive, society through working with creators and artworks. And I think I have a quite a nice story to illustrate this. I worked under Valeria as an assistant at Gus Gallery, the gallery of the University of Stellenbosch. And it was an amazing experience in color and in community and in collaboration because from the moment she walked in as a curator, she was always trying to create these spaces where many different kinds of people can come together, where art is accessible, where there's continuous conversation. And one of the ways that I suppose her form of curate can be seen as a, as a form of a protest was within the gallery space. she created this pop of color she We painted outside the gallery, we had bright and colorful posters because the gallery is situated in Dorp Street in Stellenbosch. And for those that know Stellenbosch, the entire street has white buildings. And within her time there, she tried to challenge the space to bring in a pop of color to say that here is a space where we want to critically engage with what is around us, with the people that enter the space, with the tourists, with the people that live in Stellenbosch, with the people that move through Stellenbosch, for work and kind of bring them together under this umbrella of bright and colorful art so uh, i'm very very happy to be here with you today valeria thank you so much for joining us
2: hi Jana, and nicoline wow i'm uh, really excited to join your um, intellectual lounge <laughs>
1: <laughs> and she is joining us all the way from hi today is that that's right
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah, we are cross-Atlantic, more than 10,000 kilometers, and, uh, and some uh, internet connecting us. So it's also uh, very interesting in times of COVID to just uh, skip those uh, borders. And thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's nice to have a conversation with two intelligent and interesting uh, ladies
1: <laughs> oh that's uh, so lovely and it's very shared the gratitude to be here and um, i thought we can jump into the airing around the question for the day and um, where we're going to look at what does a, a female space look like and i wanted to ask you valeria if you want to give us a little bit of context um, with where you come from as a curator specifically around where your fascination started with the politics of spaces So why are you so concerned with spaces and what it means for us?
2: Well, you know, um, my first introduction to inclusion uh, was uh, actually in South Africa. I was in my late 20s and uh, it was the first time that uh, I became aware of the fact that spaces in their aesthetics uh, can be either exclusive or inclusive for certain uh, groups of, uh, uh, of society. And uh, in South Africa, it was very clearly racial uh, exclusion. So um, going back to what you told uh, about gas, this idea of introducing color into a white-only aesthetic uh, was through awareness of uh, racial inclusion uh, or exclusion. And uh, the gender topic was actually never of a concern for me because I felt like, I'm the generation that uh, is already has it, uh, has her way uh, paved. Um, Also because I come from Soviet upbringing and um, the communist uh, society where my parents uh, and my even grandmothers grew up, it was different in terms of gender. So um, the first time that I actually became aware of uh, gender exclusion was uh, in the past uh, two years in my thirties, uh, and it was, uh, it was vivid to me thanks to the information that I gained from observing uh, racial exclusion in aesthetics. So I was working in this uh, Institute of Technology in Haifa, and uh, with the tools that I learned in South Africa. Uh, of looking critically at the uh, public spaces and how they uh, are aesthetically manifesting their uh, messages, uh, I felt uh, like that that uh, specific campus was uh, very uh, much excluding women. Like you couldn't, you didn't see women in sculptures, in photographs, and uh, that went way way deeper in um, in pay gaps and uh, yeah, different. Um, practices of exclusion, so uh, I realized that actually it was something that was transparent to me, um, this idea of whether a space is, uh, it's not so much female space, uh, but a, a space where a female would feel comfortable. Uh, so I think that making spaces feel welcoming for women it's a part of a larger uh, way of thinking of how spaces are just making different people feel uh, comfortable. And uh, that speaks to the ownership of people of the spaces. And because most of the spaces that we inherited, uh, not only in South Africa, uh, are dominated by white, uh, male, uh, dominant kind of hegemonic uh, sense of ownership, that excludes plenty of people, and now these people come uh, to speak about it and try to fix it. And the, the female experience is a dominant one because we are 50% of the population. Yeah, in places where maybe racial issues are not as uh, relevant, gender issues are uh, relevant. But I also think that the conversation that we shouldn't separate from the bigger picture of uh, inclusion for all.
0: Exactly. And um, it was interesting for me to hear you say the the gendered nature of spaces is only something that came up to you like two years ago. And to think almost that how when you almost put that lens on and you start, you go out in the world and you start looking around you. So once you just have the insight, okay, spaces are gendered and you walk down the street, it won't take you very long to realize in, in which ways they are gendered. And like you said, um, because the system of patriarchy kind of translated into masculine spaces by design, those, if you think about urban spaces, urban design. So I'm wondering, like, how do you think, before we talk about, you know, not just what is an inclusive space, what is the space where all genders feel comfortable? What is a feminist space? All of those questions. Let's talk a bit about what what does a male-dominated space mean or look like? Um, How do we understand that concept?
2: I'll give you a small example. Um, Like uh, I was uh, taking a cab uh, the other day in Haifa, and uh, I saw an ad uh, while driving with a male driver uh, that says that they will be launching a, a new square and they will be naming the square after uh, some uh, singer, a musician, a male musician and uh, I was telling the driver like, oh please, they are naming another square uh, with a male musician uh, whereas only 5% of the streets in Haifa are named after women and he was uh, like telling me yeah, but like whatever, Uh, like he he was a cool musician and it's actually nice to acknowledge people of culture. Uh, And he said, why do you pay so much attention to this? It almost felt to him like it was nonsense. And uh, (laughs) at that time, I was uh, having race negotiations with my boss at work and I was feeling like that it's a very uh, gender-influenced conversation. Uh, And I told him, because my, uh, my salary depends on uh, the fact that there are very few women acknowledged in the streets of Haifa and that translates itself further into me being paid less because I'm a woman. <laughs> so I think that this small uh, story, it, uh, it also tells you about how I see the links between things, but I also I think it tells how uh, it's not obvious Uh, to anybody, not only men or women, that link that uh, I am making between uh, aesthetics and how they later translate themselves into actual uh, resources distribution, because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day the exclusion that we are trying to uh, pay attention to or to prevent is the exclusion that like goes deep into our bread, into our livelihood Mm -hmm. uh, and aesthetics doesn't stay there
1: definitely and um yana and i in our research when we after we spoke to you the first time we also started reading a little bit about different examples of this where you say like it's not just the aesthetics it's the system behind the aesthetics that reflects the aesthetics but then the aesthetics also dictate the systems again it's this feedback loop and one example that yana shared with me um, was about um the dummy of a car and how car design uh, the dummy that they use in crashes to see like for the impact of 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 where to put the safety um what do you call it Air, what's that bubble's name airbags, <laughs> airbags. airbags. <laughs> the the airbags and um, the the dummy is a male body so actually it is very uncomfortable and dangerous for women to drive because they need to move their seats so close to the steering wheel because of just being shorter average in length. And and all those kind of ideas, then if you designing for a male body, translating into how accidents and the experience on a female body, and, and therefore it is important to care about it. And Yana, you also
0: have a, another example about India. I mean, there's so many... That's why I said it doesn't take long. Even you can walk down your own street, but there's so many fascinating examples in ways that you wouldn't even even assume. Um, it's not even obvious, and then you find out it's these simple things, like this one article where in Sweden they asked something like, "Is snow clearing sexist?" And they they did these studies where they found that um, as it as the snow begins in winter, they Basically, when they have to clear the roads, they always started with clearing the roads for cars first, because it made sense that transport is the biggest barrier. And then they saw that the pedestrian injuries during winter grew by like, um, it's like 79% of all pedestrian injuries. And then furthermore, they found that 69% of these pedestrian injuries were women. So they started seeing that what are the routes that women are taking. um, If you have to walk someone to school or being more likely to cycle or they, 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 they started populating and finding, doing studies on all like the data of how women move basically, and how something as simple as clearing the snow first for the roads was actually discriminating against women. Uh, So we find all these funny, and it's still, I guess, that's still a nuanced um, example of what does it mean? What is it that women do? How do women occupy space if it's so gendered in terms of housework, domestic work, walking children, those type of things? But we see a big increase in movements trying to reclaim certain spaces. And um, there's this movement also in India and Mumbai called hashtag why loiter and it talks about just all these men standing in the street doing nothing like loitering is literally just standing around chilling probably catcalling and <laughs> um, and how there's not really a space for women to just do nothing in the streets that that gendered spaces doesn't have to have a, a purpose necessarily um so they do these these live events where they go and just do nothing in the streets and film it and tweet it. So movements like that are really starting to inspire change and like really questioning how we think about almost the mundane everyday impacts that gender design have within spaces.
2: You know, I think that those two examples that you mentioned uh, about the cars and about the, um, the city being cleared of snow, like, Really, the world has been dominated by uh, men uh, for uh, for as long as we know, and that uh, manifests itself in so so many ways. And I think it would be interesting for us to look at uh, actually the the aspect of aesthetics and the visual aspect of uh, spaces as one that uh, we, as the people of the art, can actually see an opportunity in it for. Um, for a quick fix but not uh, as insignificant fix but i think that uh, there is so much to fix and uh, it's amazing to see how many different movements are fixing things whether it's in the uh, legal uh, aspect or the educational aspect uh, policy design like even medicine when you think about uh, medical uh, solutions they were designed uh, not for women uh, but Going back to this specific aspect of aesthetics and the visual uh, environment that we inherited from that uh, male-dominated uh, way of thinking, I think it has the potential to make it faster because uh, there is something about uh, about the eyes and the way that we see the world through uh, eyes that uh, we are very visual generation. So i think by fixing the visual aesthetics of things around us in our spaces in our work environment in our streets campuses that can um, create a, a faster change in the way of thinking and the way of behaving because it's uh, it's something that we see and i believe that it goes into our mental uh, perceptions of spaces more quickly than uh, things that are logical and more intellectual. I think there is power to aesthetics and it's no coincidence then from all the things that we did at GAS, me and Nicoline, uh, as a curatorial team, uh, what you spoke about was the color because that's something that uh, it's just, uh, it's easier to tell about than uh, something more uh, nuanced and intellectual. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is that I feel that um, when trying to make spaces more um, welcoming or even gender equality to be in aesthetics, it's a quicker thing than uh, other ways of thinking that are very important and other people are uh, are busy with them.
1: Absolutely. and I, And I think one way that... I can link with that is what you mentioned earlier about memorializing and thinking about how we remember visually and spaces and how we start bringing a presence of more people into our public spaces so that there is a visual representation of how we remember them. And one, um, visual and also a physical aspect of Gus when you were there was the fact that the doors were always wide open and there was this flow in the space with the idea of accessibility. So in thinking about our conversation today I was also thinking a lot about monuments again and the the rarity of how we actually erect female statues but then I have this conflicted feeling around it because like you said, what we know from visual history has been male dominated. So asking the questions like the kind of statues that we have right now where they're so inaccessible, you can't reach them, they're larger than life, they're supposed to solidify and be static almost of an ideology. Um, What would a future monument look like? Or what would a future female monument look like that is accessible, open, and that can be interrupted. Um, I'm I'm wondering on your thoughts about that, because I know you're also very interested in public art and and how we remember in spaces. So what would you think, um, you mentioned color, would be a future monument that could represent more female figures? Uh,
2: You know, I think it's a fascinating question that I'm happy to say that I don't believe there is one right answer to it. And I've been exploring it because the obvious thing would be to erect uh, the same uh, pedestal, the stone, uh, forever uh, surviving uh, weather woman. Okay, and let's make her uh, a woman of color, so it will even be more progressive. But uh, then um, comes uh, some uh, artists like Stenbillam Cezanne, who actually with her work of performance in public spaces, she offers us not to replace the male stone forever uh, higher above us, but actually to look at this idea of somebody standing there forever above everybody as a male notion to begin with. Or maybe not all male, but just that like specific uh, colonial uh, kind of thinking. Of, mm. So maybe a female monument, it's not a monument that stay, maybe it's not a monumental thing maybe mm-hmm. this idea of doing something monumental is to begin with uh, something that we need to worry about because the idea is not that we will now make female spaces that will uh, make men feel uncomfortable that's not the point the point mm-hmm. is to create inclusive spaces because we have a lot of gender fluidity discourse coming into our lives and We need to also be aware of that before we celebrate women and, hey, what about the trans? What about people who have more um, fluid uh, identity in terms of gender? And look, for example, uh, what can trigger our imaginations. So it doesn't have to be a representation of a certain person because maybe making a certain person already above everybody is a problematic notion because Mm -hmm. we want everybody to feel worthy and equal. Uh, so maybe temporality uh, mm-hmm. or, or something that is temporary, like live art, and it's no coincidence that in contemporary South Africa, live art is like a full-on thing. And what you did, for example, the intervention uh, with the, the with the stairs that you built, it was uh, something temporary. It wasn't replacing, but it was uh, mm-hmm. complicating. Or look at the uh, I uh, will have to remember the name, but uh, there was a, a street a piece of uh, this uh, afro comb, a pink afro comb that created an artist that is based around Stellenbosch and it's a pink afro comb. So it's not representing any woman, but it's a brilliant uh, example of making a woman who uses afro comb, who has that kind of hair, to feel, okay, that space acknowledges me and my existence. And, that's an interesting way, or what Kirsten uh, Waris did uh, with her graduation uh, project at the Stellenbosch University. She graffitied a wall, outside wall of, uh, on Dorp Street, uh, with the pink and yellow uh, paint depicting women and asking questions about the place of women in uh, street culture. Um, And she wasn't, she did, uh, in a way, portray herself, but it wasn't like, hey, this is me, and you should be like me and remember me, but just other ways of doing things. And that's so exciting. You know, I was working with a group of teenagers in Haifa with whom I was trying to raise this uh, idea of of why there is no female uh, street. And when we were trying to create an intervention about it, they told me, like, yeah, let's say put flowers on a street pole. Like, it was a refreshing for me that they didn't try to bring up a woman and put her face there. But actually, to, to look at what feminizing and what making something comfortable for us as women would feel like. And maybe that's just like more flowers, you know, <laughs> or maybe something less cliche than flowers. Uh, yeah it's an interesting conversation that i think should stay open and maybe you girls have ideas
0: uh, i mean i just love what you were just saying and i think we all uh, gravitated towards the same idea because in in previous conversations with Nicoline it was also that thing of interrogating the idea of of and memorializing things as a, a, a masculine ideal in itself and Also, I like what you said in terms of how it's a very individualized approach um, because trying and how it also then neglects this idea of textured realities, neglecting the idea that people are more complex by just idealizing this one figure. And then we see in South African histories, the kind of pushback you get, um, thinking someone, a figure like Winnie Mandela or someone that's a complicated Public persona, um, and you see the resistance in terms of of memorializing her in ways uh, similar to that. The, the the masculine figures just had all this leeway. Um, this I, the same criteria didn't even apply. Like it it was kind of like it doesn't matter if you are also a racist and you did this and this and this. This is the one thing, and that's fine. And it's it's such a there's such a deficit when you cannot deal with the complexity of the figures and the events that we are trying to memorialize. Um, so I think that's really profound. Even thinking at the moment that Bosch, there's a call to rename the Wilcox building uh, with a lot of suggestions, like you say, to include black female um, figures in South Africa, activists. Um, but to then think, how can we go beyond just changing a street name and, and rethink the entire system of how we memorialize and who we put in public spaces. So I think that's so fascinating. And, and when we pose the question in that way, there's a lot of brainstorming that can happen. So I'm looking forward, because I know nicoleen has a billion ideas of how <laughs> to actually work in, in practice, in practice.
2: Yeah. But you know what's nice is also to just try things. To just try things and to to leave it open, not to compete uh, it's her is Nicoline artwork more to the point than Stambila? no it's actually the idea is it's like a supermarket shelf mm-hmm. you you need to have uh, options because maybe that's the answer uh, also and I'm all about uh, yes acknowledging more women in street names while exploring the question whether. Street names should even be celebrating specific individuals. Um, and while listening to you, raised this uh, notion about um, okay, if it's not a female face, then what it is? And it reminds me of uh, this uh, intervention by Candy Chang, who invented uh, this uh, interactive uh, public art piece called "Before I Die, I Want to." And then people like complete it uh, and they spray it uh, on some wall. And then people would chalk and write, fill in what they would like to do before they die. And like it's a global project that it's very popular. And that made me think, okay, maybe that's a female thing to do. To just pose a question and to let a lot of people answer it and to facilitate uh, this. um, I don't know. I don't know. It's just a thought. And uh, somebody could come and challenge me, like, why is that female? Because when we are dealing with this kind of uh, healing processes, then um, obviously there is um, a sense of accusation maybe that uh, arises from it. So we must keep it open, I think, in order not to fall back into these separations that we are coming out against in the first place.
1: Yes, and it it is so difficult to speak about it because we have a history that has been so masculine. It kind of sets you up to then start playing into the binary. But maybe, like you said, the 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 story is just about telling more stories in more ways we can possibly tell stories. And your example of an interactive art um project really plays into my idea of how we can start doing this. That um, I almost feel like the the street names and the memorials that we have in place right now that is so it seems to have this 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 energy of you can't interrupt me around it in spaces like south africa that is a, an invitation and the opportune moment to then go there and engage with it and to kind of underscore the problematics and become the frame and become the intervention and become the constant questioning so i've i've often thought of this idea of having a constant stream of interruption happen with the monuments that we have in place right now as a kind of monument because then the constant changeable interruption becomes this narrative that that is engaging with the past and not leaving it uninterrupted but then also not taking it away completely because i think that the the conversation between the two is where at the moment we are so um this is our current moment, you know, like I, I really share the belief with you that if we start changing things on a visual level, people can start also changing inside them and changing systems. And I've seen this in countries like in Germany, where on every corner, there is a confrontation with the Holocaust. And, and, and it is this constant constant visual engagement that has to happen in your navigation of the city and it's not just in the strict form of a monument you are sometimes guided through a garden that has sound or you sometimes walk into a space that just has a pond that reflects something and you are forced to within this experience reflect on what happened in the space in the past. And I think creating spaces like that where you can't avoid it because it interrupts your experience of navigating the city and the workplace and all of that um, is what we need um, to kind of also inspire that change. But I must say at the same time,
2: uh, I do think these statues must uh, fall (laughs) like at least... uh, At least some of them, because really, like, I can't imagine an experience of a person who walks there every day and Mm -hmm. sees, like, a certain figure being high and Mm -hmm. proud. uh, And it's not the figure of them. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that by them remaining there. And it's interesting how uh, artists uh, engage with it. And it's so progressive, like what South Africans are doing. So, so progressive. Um, But at the same time, they stay there and um, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure that leaving them and engaging with them, it really balances things. But uh, it's definitely what artists can do. I really think that uh, it's such a huge privilege for me to have spent five years in Cape Town in the heart of those discussions in the times of Fees must fall and Rhodes must Fall, like years after that, I feel that uh, it's such a progressive way of doing and thinking, and I'm also passionate about just telling people uh, for example, in Israel, like just sharing with them the space the mental space where you guys are in, where you girls are in. <laughs> Uh, where you people are in that uh, I feel like the other day I was speaking to this consultant that uh, specializes in inclusion in Israel and I was telling her like that I feel that I've seen the future when I was uh, in South Africa comparing to what's happening in Israel in terms of uh, inclusion and gender equality and awareness to it and what art can do with it that's like something that south africans are so way ahead and um, it's fascinating how what is perceived as um, more uh, backward because it's africa because it's the global south because what do we know about south africa outside of nelson mandela and poverty and this is something that i really always look for opportunities to to highlight how advanced uh, you are in this uh, awareness to the aesthetics and the politics of aesthetics mm-hmm. and what art can do with it.
0: I also share that thought that there's something to be said for because we grapple with these complexities in public space and uh, we make, we bring, we, as there is something of a South African culture of bringing things out in the public space and. And that allows us a lot of opportunities, uh, while it's uncomfortable a lot of times, to to delve into those complexities. And the one question, like as you were speaking now, that also just stays with me, and um, because we know that the aesthetics and the design and the power that it has, like the power of representation, the power of of small visuals, uh, even in, in, like like we said, in more mundane ways, like, everyday things, and then on more intense level, it's still in South Africa, it's that tension of even if we reappropriate and reconceptualize and deconstruct ideas of how we represent things in the public space, um, especially with the idea of being, you know, almost the post-gender, the gender fluidity of not tapping into that narrative of, of binaries when we do it, there's still this reality of of problems of of violence against women in public spaces so i feel like at the same time it's like this double it's this double thing that we have to constantly deal with with on the one hand thinking about how we represent space and how that has the power to change things but then also the question of access and spaces and and who who can how can we use certain spaces you know i went running again yesterday or the other day and how I was just compelled to pick up a rock while I run in the mountain just out of, it's just something like going for a run or like they said with the hashtag, uh, why loiter thing of just chilling in the street, you know, where can you walk those type of barriers that are obviously also so differentially, um, experienced in the South African context. Like what, how, what does that impose upon these larger questions surrounding public space and, um, moving beyond like binary gendered constructions but still very much having it be a, a woman problem that we experience in terms of how we access public space so how can we navigate that type of question alongside this conversation
2: wow listen i think that um, personal safety and when you run and you feel that you need to have like something to protect yourself from for case of you are attacked uh, and your uh, like body is uh, violated it's it's like the it's the worst if you could uh, somehow put on a scale what it means to be um, discriminated on gender uh, basis that is like on the very very edge not edge like it's the that side the worst And then we we go further from there. Uh, What I mentioned about, for example, being paid less because you are a woman, that's nowhere near uh, being raped or attacked or just feeling unsafe. But it's all, I think, exists on the same scale. Uh, On the same scale exists that situation where uh, you are not being able to finish uh, your sentence uh, around uh, some kind of professional discussion. Somebody calls you honey or uh, whatever. So it's a range, it's a wild range. And of course, personal safety and just like being protected from being raped that's uh, the highest priority because that's life. But uh, I think that as artists and people of uh, visuals, we we deal with the the more uh, deeper um, source of these problems because. uh, I feel that the rape culture, or not culture, like just rape happening, uh, is uh, is a symptom. It's, mm. it's already like the disease is the male not considering women as equal, and one of its symptoms. It's also that, uh, and also not being paid well, and also not being promoted, and 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 uh, the source the the way of thinking that's where we are working as the cultural workers and that's uh, where i can explain uh, how i don't know uh, painting a wall or doing a mural or even just removing uh, a statue uh, would um, later help prevent you from feeling unsafe when you are running Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's not a direct link, I see it very clearly, and what uh, interests me is to deal with those uh, social constructs uh, because I feel later they will translate themselves to lower crime rates. And the same I feel about uh, racial discrimination and how working towards uh, racial equality, or even beyond racial mm-hmm. equality, <clears throat> just equality. In uh, South Africa, for example, uh, that uh, could lead later to less crime happening in townships or in general. Uh, I see the link very clear and uh, going back to where I'm based now, uh, like we have uh, a Jewish dominated society in Israel that has unresolved issues with its Palestinian population inside and the refugees who were forced to leave their homes outside of the borders of Israel. And now, how do we even begin to deal with it? So, of course, the the occupation and the discrimination of Palestinians by the Israeli state, that's the main symptom, and that's the equivalent of you running and holding a stone to protect yourself. Uh, It's that basic livelihood that people are prevented from enjoying. But I would uh, argue that my uh, calling and my work toward fixing this really, really, really bad situation is from the aesthetic point of view. It, if I see more Arabic uh, language in my uh, space, if I see more people who are with Arabic aesthetics or Palestinian aesthetics, that also is a very complicated issue, of course. But uh, That uh, will, uh, I think, dissolve the tension that leads later to violence. But uh, I'm not in the business of uh, preventing violence, like by putting cameras or policing. Uh, I feel that my business is to treat the social constructs that later encourage, allow uh, this violence to happen. And as I said earlier, gender... Race, whatever other ethnical or religious uh, othering uh, there is that exists, uh, the tools are the same tools uh, to prevent them from becoming this like really violent and um, just not fun spaces to live and breathe in. <laughs>
1: Absolutely, I think a a wonderful article that you wrote that you shared with us in preparation for this um, episode really illustrates this idea of how the aesthetics reflect the unconscious of the space where with road signs you write about the US road signs only representing females in very, very few scenarios. And initially, when I thought about road signs, I thought about pedestrian signs. But then when I read your article, I realized official signage, it in- It shows us everything that you do in life. There's signs for hiking, there's signs for swimming, there's signs for where you can rollerblade, where you can skateboard. And then, when you start thinking about only having masculine forms represent the people that give instructions and that can access these spaces, but also the only um, the only information is given through this specific kind of representation, you start understanding how that can then translate or it shows the unconscious of the space and then it translates into these understandings of that that we um, internalize that i can't access a space like a hiking space alone because i mean From a very young age, I've been exposed to this sign that shows me this, and I didn't even know it was part of my unconscious of navigating the space. So I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit more about the signs and the interesting things around signage, uh, but I thought that was a very interesting example of how it reflects the unconscious.
2: Yeah, so uh, actually it was such a beautiful opportunity. I was approached by two sisters, who decided to create a a website called the Wonder Women Project that uh, surfaces uh, issues and information about uh, the presence of women in public spaces in the States. And uh, I was doing the research and writing for them, and then they offered uh, to have a conversation about road signs. And me too, I was like, okay, that sounds a little bit esoteric, like, so... And diving into it was fascinating because that's exactly that transparent uh, message that we all are getting, but not realizing that we are getting and that some random cab driver will probably think that I'm overthinking (laughs) and I'm being petty and what am I dealing with? But uh, it's fascinating because when I was researching it about the US, I actually find out That it's a global conversation and also, if I remember correctly, in Australia and in uh, Sweden and in Germany they also had those uh, questions of how yeah, how the aesthetics are designed by men, for men and we are only entering when we need to breastfeed or to like take the child to the playground and uh, and being a person who is aware of uh, the politics of aesthetics, that really is something you cannot unsee. <laughs> so before you see it, it's all fine and neutral, but then you can't unsee it. And in Haifa, there is this thing that some um, pedestrian uh, robots, uh, they, you need to press the button for them to operate. Otherwise, they are always green for the cars and never red for the pedestrians. And there is a sign that I think is specific to Israel, I'm not sure of of just a hand of of just a hand uh, pressing a button and ever since I did this article, <laughs> I am like sitting on this uh, very powerful wish of taking red nail polish and just going and painting like long red uh, nails on this hand because. You know how hands can be gendered? That's also uh, an interesting question. <laughs> but, uh, all I'm saying is that once you know, it's how to unknow and it's how to resist the wish to fix things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's in something as uh, sort of insignificant as uh, an image of a hand. But mm-hmm. uh, But I am aware of the fact that it sends a message that later. Construct a whole social construct that later becomes policy and becomes behavior, and then um, it's cool to treat it from the roots, don't you think so?
0: Mm, mm, mm. I completely agree, and I think it's it's so fascinating. Also, how um, I really like the way that you could frame. the the conversation, the spectrum of how we can start to grapple with the power of aesthetics and the visual power of aesthetics and how simple ways of subverting it, like you said, with the nail polish or um, just by inserting a little something, you become aware of this this larger problem. I mean, even if you think about, uh, yeah, why is woman always represented with a child in that little you know they have the triangular skirts and then a child and that's the, almost the only way that you or that i can think of that i've seen women on road signs like whenever is there only a woman on a road sign and for what reason would it be
1: mm-hmm.
0: and would
2: that uh, like you know what the, uh, the argument that i uh, encountered when doing this research was uh mm-hmm. people naively saying yeah but that uh, That figure that me and you, we see it as a male figure, it's actually a neutral figure. Because it's not like it has like, uh, you know, a dick or something. It's just like a neutral figure, like a child would draw. (laughs) Um, So that's also an interesting question to engage with. with. Do we need to have like stereotypical gender uh, features like boobs and long hair and a skirt where... A lot of women are actually trying to protest against that. So I think that um, it all goes back to just awareness and talking about it and raising conversations about it. And it's no coincidence that, Nicoleen, you presented me as a person who starts conversations because uh, I'm not about now like doing a... Full-on project of muraling uh, the S out of Haifa to be more female and uh, not so much like only Jewish. Like you know, it's about starting the conversations. That's for me what us as uh, cultural workers are doing. Uh, And then um, the awareness is sometimes enough uh, to to feel that you made a difference. And uh, the nail polish, the drawing, like it's fine as long as we have the critical awareness towards it, and that's what eventually I work for. It's not so much um redressing the city, but also to to engage people in thinking about it in the process, because if I redress the city and I get the budget and it's all now female and whatever. Um if people didn't engage critically in the process then uh, we didn't do the healing
1: mm. yes then we try to create the opposite of what we can perceive as male aesthetics and then we actually also perpetuate this ideal that it's something that can be set in a visual and now it's a more female city and i think like you say the awareness translates eventually into a different kind of doing is in the beginning. It's just an awareness and a conversation. And then eventually it can translate into small moments of, of different doing where, um, with Olivia Bevan, the episode we did on the design of educational spaces. And we started thinking of where the model of an education space come from. Again, it's inspired by when only certain people could teach and be in front of a classroom. And it creates this visual and experiential hierarchy. And now if you think of education spaces at large, how there is so many visuals in place in the way that the buildings are designed, in the form of access in how you can't really see the administration and how where the people that run the whole <clears throat> the whole uh, institution is removed Visit, visibly removed from the people that actually enter the space. And the way that that understanding of design and the visual impact that it has in my life has informed me is now that I'm thinking about teaching art in my own profession. How do we break those barriers from the beginning? How do we not even set them up within a new design space so that there is not that hierarchy that is perpetuated by visual ways of being and ways of sitting and ways of navigating?
2: You know, it reminds me of uh, an interesting story that uh, relates from a different angle to what you just uh, described. Um, I was looking uh, at this experiment where um, people explored how, um, speaking about road and traffic, how actually different signs, uh, even the, the difference between where pedestrians walk and where cars walk and robots and... All those signs that are supposed to help us navigate uh, traffic in a city. There was an experiment uh, done in a few small cities in Europe where they removed completely all graphic signs that are supposed to regulate traffic. Uh, and what they fi- wanted to explore was um, whether, when there is no signs and no like uh, Big Brother telling us when you must go and when you must go that welcomes more interaction uh, between people, and then they just learn ways of solving it between them. So it just makes me think, you were saying how the educational space is so hierarchical, Uh, it just makes me think like how those hierarchies are supposed to actually save us from, uh, or yeah like save us from establishing authority and from establishing certain kind of uh, relationships and this is why you can't see the administration and it can see you and this is why like the head of department office has a door which is usually closed uh, and your studios as art students don't you are uh, more like accessible uh, to them Uh, this is I don't know. It just makes me think how, when we try to inherit certain structures, then we inherit also the problematics of the structures. And maybe actually, imagine in a clean page, uh, it's an interesting experiment when we speak about different social issues that we inherited and that uh, now. Being older and wiser, we notice, actually, that's not cool. That keeps us back. There is something unjust about it. Yeah, and it's it's nice to just play and continue exploring different ideas. That's, for me, the objective. I don't strive to find, like, the solution.
0: It's so funny how... Even with, with cars and yeah, you know, when you start rethinking those traffic systems, I mean, even if you compare what it feels like driving in different countries that you've visited, and I mean, earlier this year I was in in Southeast Asia, and there was just a difference by design of having a scooter-based lifestyle uh, versus car-based lifestyle, and then time spent in amsterdam where it's like the more the bicycles and the public transport and how by design something as simple as that and how for some people it's i mean some people would say it's chaotic though you know the streets where it's just all these bicycles and everyone is tooting and in south africa we associate the like tutor i don't know what you call it in as like a it's kind of a symbol of road rage, like you're doing something wrong, but then there's other ways where it becomes a social thing of like just sh- indicating that I'm in your way, look out for me, but in a friendly way, or like we see with the taxi culture, even if you then in in main road in Cape Town, if you go and you just hear all these taxis indicating you know they have space in the car for passengers, so there's so many different ways in which these these normal everyday symbols have different structures and different ways of regulating or not regulating or uh, whether one is a a regulation and the other one is an invitation. Um, And I find that so fascinating.
2: Yeah, you know, it makes me think uh, also um, what you are saying is basically how different uh, manifestations have different meanings in their context. And maybe that's where actually the conversation leads to is uh, to just um, keep in mind that uh, not, not all of us are reading the same signs uh, in different ways. Uh, I was thinking about cleanliness and how, uh, when uh, preparing to talk about spaces um, that are more welcoming for, for women, I was uh, walking my hood, and uh, it's not the cleanest hood and it's not, not the highest rent. Uh, where i live but it's actually the most diverse uh, neighborhood i know of in haifa and i was thinking like okay for this street to be more friendly for me as a woman it's just it it would be nice if it would be cleaner Uh, but then i was thinking about those very sterile streets that also are uh, on the top of the mountain in haifa but in south africa like cleanliness and streets that are there are clean, they're actually streets that are exclusive to people who are poor and who are more poor than the people who live there. So then cleanliness becomes a tool of exclusion and dirt becomes a tool of inclusion, which is such, a, I don't know if we are allowed to say it, but a mind fuck. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and this. I was
2: th- I was like walking this uh, neighborhood where I live in Haifa, and I was thinking, wow, like maybe the fact that it's so like inclusive in terms of uh, economical statuses, and it's a place where you can easily hear Hebrew, Arabic, Russian, like different uh, groups they live there, uh, but it's not a nice place for women and. Uh, and it just made me think how cleanliness can be a tool that uh, on one hand uh, promotes gender, uh, more equality, but then takes away more other equalities. Uh, and there is, again, no, like, of course, we all strive for clean spaces and uh, nobody wants to be associated with spaces of uh, not being clean as, as a good thing. But uh, when you're just observing that's the kind of things that you notice, like with the hooting, that sometimes it's rude, sometimes it's actually a sign of me acknowledging you, and uh, it's all a matter of context, I guess, and just um, hearing what people feel about things and just working with that, but sometimes it can be contradicting.
1: Absolutely. It makes me think of my experience of small town living in South Africa versus coming to the city where in small towns, especially where my grandparents used to live, people would live in the street much more. And and, and I know that Also in South Africa, there's a lot of people that live out of their houses into the community and there's an engagement over fences and you can see it happening in the street where someone will be busy with a project and maybe they start building it in their garden and it starts going outside into into the street you know and there's this visual engagement over um, your barrier of your house and when we start thinking about design and like you're saying almost thinking about the things that would that we would like to change like making spaces more relational making systems more transparent and we design for that we understand that it's going to translate into a different way of being with people around you so orchestra creating neighborhoods that are then built in circles instead of in blocks and creating big community spaces in the center of it I'm just thinking again of an example at Gas, where you've always engaged with a lot of music and musicians and bringing music and art together as a way to collaborate and um, and and it was key to to kind of combating the things that we do not agree with like separation is bringing people together and that we can actually design for that but very few spaces that we function in is designed like that like most people's working and living environments is very isolated and kind of more structured
2: yo you know i really feel that uh, what you are saying and using the word relational that's where it all eventually boils down to i think that um, the right kind of aesthetic, uh, it creates those behaviors and uh, they don't even have to be curated. Like we don't have to see through that people think, okay, if there is music and color, then I'll be nice to my neighbor. It's, it's something that will, I believe that will just see through. And the, you can look at the opposite example of the sea point. And I don't know if you're familiar with the white curtains uh, project that I had there that basically was engaging with the, no, with the fact that the body corporates in uh, this uh, fancy neighborhood of Cape Town, they oblige you that the curtains in your home must be white. And they punish you by a uh, way of a uh, fine uh, in case they are not white. Imagine post-apartheid South Africa, the color of white being so politicized, and there is a full-on neighborhood that uh, that polices it but not from some municipality the body corporate this is like the owners of the flat now what culture does that boil down to if we look at the relational because again some cab driver could tell me oh man you are dealing with curtains like don't you have something more important to do with your life <laughs> but i would argue that uh, that this is the symbol of the culture that I experienced as a resident uh, in Seapoint, where your neighbor will not come to you to ask you something or to tell you something, but they will send the guard from downstairs to come up to your place and to tell you that your music is too loud and everything like is designed to actually not encourage that over-the-fence interaction uh, that you described then, uh, So, I think that uh, that those cases, they prove the link that does exist between uh, relational mentality of a certain social environment and, uh, and its aesthetics. And um, I repeat again, South Africa is so like, advanced uh, in uh, having even those conversations. And maybe it's thanks to the painful fact that it was so advanced in uh, being uh, like problematic (laughs) (laughs) so maybe thanks to the fact that uh, the problematics of the previous regime uh, were so blunt and so out there maybe thanks to that uh, your generation uh, the democratic generation has uh, the privilege of also fixing it on a larger scale because the problem was so vivid
0: Mm.
1: Mm, absolutely. It makes me think of one more example of an architect that came to speak to us at the Design daba And we were privileged as art students to attend the Design daba and Artscape. And he showed us these buildings that he's designing where it's this strange shape. They're not in the shapes that we understand buildings now. It's almost like um, almost like a tunnel. And then you live in these units in the tunnel and so it makes this arch and then there's in the center of the arch there's a community space where people sell goods and come together and there's a coffee shop and if you look up all of the the windows that are in the arch is say, for example, people's um, kitchens. So you are constantly seeing the people that is living in your building, but you're also seeing the people that are passing through the building and you are interacting with the people from your room and from your house and always kind of confronted with the fact that you are not isolated, but you are in this building and in this unit with other people. And and then talking about how he says that this kind of design of the building inspires more collaboration and inspires connection and you can't avoid someone if you are confronted with them visually over and over and over again exactly And
2: again those things and they can go different ways like i can tell you for example that uh, the building where i live now it becomes a little bit even over problematic the way like people are the balcony of my neighbor is near my balcony and she's like only waiting to talk to me, so <laughs> sometimes it's like something that I feel hurts my uh, sense of privacy. So mm-hmm. it goes different ways, and uh, I believe it's really um, it's about being very sensitive and site specific about thinking mm-hmm. not things and not trying to import uh, them or parachute them, mm-hmm. but actually just um, thinking critically about every specific
0: situation mm. I like that and it, it reinforces the, the context specific ideas of design and it's also to ask that say if we say with the focus on relational design because the nice thing about relationality is that acknowledgement of you are always implicated with one another so either way um there's a the with the road sign example again You are, it's not that it's just the fact that it's male dominated and now you change it and it's female denominated. It's saying that there's something that implicates us in the idea that it is male dominated and trying to come to the root of what that is. And that will always be a relational answer. So, to not only assume that relational design is necessary, like you said, a literal uh, manifestation of being confronted by each other but to start thinking more creatively like what does relational design what does um what does that look like um and i think you mentioned i don't know if you want to repeat maybe that story that you told about the car and relationality because i think that's also as we kind of try and wrap our thoughts around and the, and if the idea of relationality is coming to the center, like maybe you can share some ideas surrounding relational design just to, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that relational design is, uh, is a term that uh, I got engaged with since uh, I was working in a department of design at this uh, technical institute in Haifa. So uh, I took all my uh, relational art ideas that define my curatorial practice and I started thinking about them in the context of design. And uh, when trying to translate uh, into the design terminology, uh, I got to think, okay, what relational uh, implications are there to design? Because as artists, I don't know, at least me, I was always thinking like of design as uh, art without the soul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like to make the phone pretty or uh, something like that. but. Um, engaging critically within that space of design i was thinking how relational is that and and much more also uh, the the reach of design is much more in terms of numbers than of art Uh, so maybe it's actually worth uh, exploring that and then at the time i was reading a, a book by milan kundera who was describing uh, how he took a ride out of town uh, with uh, his wife. Speaking of gender inequalities, the wife sits next to the driver, but that's not the point of the story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he just described something that we all uh, experienced before. You are driving uh, in, a one, uh, in a lane, uh, and there is a one lane to this direction uh, of traffic, and there is a car behind you, and it's being impatient, and it's trying to like signal you it's impatient, and it makes you feel not at ease. But you can you don't want to drive faster. You can't drive faster. So it's kind of relational situation that uh, that creates a lot of tension and stress, and then it obviously develops to road rage. And he is thinking philosophically in this book that is called Slowness, by the way. And he's thinking critically in this book how the design of the car, the fact that it's a metal structure that isolates a a being from their environment, even in terms of sound, in terms of wind, like you just outsource this sense of speed to a machine and you are sitting like in some kind of eggshell or something that protects you and uh, it's an interesting read that really opens questions about how the design of a car actually affects us relationally and how road rage, road accidents, car clashing, gorgeous speeding like how that became i think one of the most um, popular reasons of injuries or death is the road accidents and how actually design unintentionally plays a role in that it it allows us to be less sensitive to the person who we are trying to negotiate some shared resource like the road for example with but to complicate things and not to leave them like as good or bad because that's never helpful a car can also create intimate situations that relationally bring us closer together because me if the three of us now take a road trip and we spend like hours in a car driving somewhere that might actually create something intimate and build something between us thanks to this design of this eggshell that isolates us from outside and you know there are of course stories about uh, romantic engagements in cars (laughs) Um, so it goes different ways and I think uh, what is important is to just uh, be aware of how these things that are supposedly aesthetics for the sake of aesthetics or for the sake of commercializing something they actually have relational implications and to just keep in mind how everything is relational like from a road sign to the design of a car to the stairs in the entrance to some architectural uh, building, the size of my windows, the color of uh, a street, and so on and so forth. Uh, it has the relational implications.
1: Yo, Valeria, I want to say thank you so much for coming to air it and not giving us an answer, but leaving us with more questions than we had, (laughs) because that is exactly what I meant when I introduced you that uh, there is always this piece of, yes, but, and then another question. And that leads us to, on a very interesting path of trying to figure out new ways of being and doing, but always with this aspect of questioning and conversing and trying to see how we can understand multiple sides of, a, of an issue. So if there is any closing thoughts you want to share with us, it would be really nice to, if, if you have anything that you want to say, if you want to plug yourself, where people can find you. Um, yeah. <laughs>
2: Uh, First of all, I really, really just enjoyed uh, airing it with you, and it's (laughs) such a beautiful space uh, that uh, doesn't invite uh, conclusions, but actually invites this sense of uh, releasing, and um, it's a beautiful uh, concept, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I write, and I have a website that uh, compiles uh, the projects that I did, and I do lectures, so... Just Google and me, I think, should do. I work uh, under Yala Shula, which is the, the name of the agency that uh, I established. Uh, yeah, and I would just um, like to thank you actually for creating this space because uh, I think spaces for airing things, that's what I'm doing in my curatorial practice and in the classroom when I speak about the relational design. I actually just want people to to feel free to air things because once they are aired, then uh, it's like 90% of solving the problem. So I think <laughs> that uh, creating spaces uh, for for conversations that are not judgmental and that are not uh, like trying to convince anybody, that's just the way to go. And maybe during COVID, the uh, the digital space, the podcast space. Uh, it's also an interesting curatorial uh, platform to think about
0: it's been so fantastic to hear you say that and um, yeah thank you for also leaving us with questions and and leaving us with the invitation to further these thoughts i think everyone listening here today will definitely have different ideas anytime they see a road sign or walk down the street or visit the bathroom so Thank you for also stimulating those ideas in us and, and yeah, leaving us with a beautiful invitation to start critically rethinking the world, the world around us.
2: <laughs> and thank you. It's, uh, it's not something that I take for granted, the, the, just the feeling of being understood and people wanting to engage uh, in those conversations. Uh, it's really something that I appreciate and uh, cherish. Uh, So thank you for welcoming me, and um, well done on the initiative again, it's so significant.
1: Thank you so much. So on that point of shared gratitude, I think we're gonna say goodbye for today.